Coming up on this very first episode of The Forecast, Jessica Lombardo joins the show to talk about the infrastructure bill saga, its passage through the Senate, what to look for coming up here, and how it's going to impact the work you're doing. Kurt Binnick is also here to talk about the Deer Hitachi Excavator Joint Venture Breakup and how the semiconductor shortage slash chip shortage is affecting both work truck availability and used truck pricing. Those and other big stories impacting the construction industry coming up on The Forecast right now. Welcome to the very first episode of The Forecast, the flagship podcast here at 4constructionpros.com. I'm Wayne, editor-in-chief here at FCP. Jessica Lombardo, our editor of Asphalt Contractor, is also here. Hey, Jess, what's up? Hey, Wayne, how are you? Kurt Binnick, our senior field editor at Equipment Today, is also here. Kurt, how you doing, man? Pretty good, Wayne. We're also joined today by FCP editor Larry Stewart. How you doing, man? Living la vida loco, man. Definitely. And as always, we're joined by our producer and friend, Jason Frausto. What's up, Jason? Nothing much. Doing good. Good, good. So guys, as you know, we have a lot to talk about here on this inaugural episode. So we're going to just jump right in. Topic one is going to be the infrastructure bill, the the monster that just made it through the the Senate uh, and the, and still has kind of a ways to go here with, with the House. But Jessica, you're here today to, to kind of offer us your knowledge on all of that. Um, you've, you've been covering this like a full-time job <laughs> that it is. Uh, so uh, you, you've put out, you've pretty much covered it from the inception, um, uh, from when it was in a, a baby bill, all the way kind of through to it getting through the house. Um, and so you've had lots of great uh, breakdowns on what's in it, what's not in it. But most recently here, you, you did a couple of stories, uh, one of them called, uh, you know, three things the infrastructure bill addresses, and then a follow-up on three things that the bill uh, kind of left out or missed. Um, let's start here with the with your your piece on the three things it addresses um and, and kind of the first question i have for you is kind of fill everybody in on just how bad the problem with infrastructure here is uh he, is here in the united states and and how bad the problem is that this bill is at least trying to fix yes yeah, so we have backlogs on backlogs on backlogs i mean it's been a running joke in washington that every week is infrastructure week because we always need to talk about it And finally, we're doing something about it. So I'm really thankful to have this full-time job for now, talking about our infrastructure bill. Um, The roads in our country are terrible. 40% of them are in need of repair. And that's a $435 billion backlog in itself. Bridges, one in three of them in the United States are structurally deficient. And that means that people are driving across our structurally deficient bridges 171.5 million times a day. So things are really, really bad. And we're just thankful to have infrastructure as part of the conversation in this administration. Why why do you think, I mean, and you've been covering this for a long time, but like, why, why do you think it is one of those things that, you know, I I think that as soon as I started covering the industry, one of the very early things I heard about infrastructure funding in general, was it being likened to like a can kick down the road? I mean, just because it's been going on for so long. What do you think is is funding for these roads and bridges? Is it is it because we're just so used to the bridges being there, or a lot of them are so old that we don't see it as more of an urgent problem? Like, what what is to your in your mind why this has such a hard time getting addressed through the legislative process? Well, I think that everybody's afraid to talk 
talk about how we're going to pay for it. You know, everybody thinks that fixing our infrastructure is such a huge deal, but nobody knows how to pay for it. And, you know, when Biden came in and said, you know, we're going to build back better. I'm going to release this American jobs plan. We're going to spend two trillion over four years to do it. He was adamant that we are not going to raise new taxes on that. And that was kind of a non-starter for Republicans. They really were like, if we're going to build a new infrastructure, we need to find a way to pay for it because that's the fiscal responsible way to do things. So it kind of progressed through with Republicans and Democrats, and then it kind of fell short again until some um, bipartisan senators kind of picked it up and they sat down. There was 22 of them that kind of said, we need to come to some agreements. We need to create some framework for this legislation that is really going to get people on board with it in, in a responsible way that kind of covers all aspects of infrastructure and that really does so in a fiscally responsible way. Yeah, I mean, and another in, kind of, uh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Wayne, but no to, problem. to put this into context, uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting to me that, that um, you know, the, the uh, reauthorizations on existing highway bills end up getting kicked down the road for years at a time uh, between reauthorizations, let alone a whole new kind of a program right. like, what, like what we're looking at here today. And, and that problem has gotten progressively worse over the 35 years or close to it that I've been doing this thing. Um, uh, as the, the um, uh, uh, suspicion or, or, or uh, uh, lack of confidence uh, among both voters and politicians uh, in the government has grown. And, and, you know, we saw that when, uh, you know, the, the, under the, the previous four years to this administration, they talked about infrastructure. That was when everyone started talking about infrastructure week being every week. They talked a lot about infrastructure, but they never right. got anywhere close to, to proposing a bill. And, and so, you know, the, the, the rise of the, um, this unwillingness to, to uh, raise taxes, to, to apply taxes to things, has really stymied the process. Uh, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that strikes me is, is that there's a, there's a caucus in Congress who believes, appears to believe that government doesn't work and they're prepared to, to, to defund uh, an element that's as simple as, as uh, uh, building roads, one that's, that's a, that is, is essentially uh, tied to the identity of what, of what governments do. They build roads, they, you know, they, for, the, right. for the public use. You know, the, the, this, in this latest negotiation, there was a group that just drew a hard line, no, we're not going to enforce IRS um, uh, laws to collect the $440 billion a year that we don't get because people right. don't pay their taxes. So, I mean, and then there, I mean, that also kind of points to the problem, too, with like there's been other initiatives apart from just rate like like the, like the gas tax or usage uh, kind of um, fees where, where they're like, you know, in Oregon with the Orego kind of situation where they've literally kind of tried to figure out like a good way of like getting people to pay per mile. And, and, and th those have been met with um, various, uh, 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 you know, kind of 
I guess amounts of success, but like just like what how how do those kind of usage fees kind of play into to some of this as well? You know, user fees are going to be the future of our infrastructure funding. The gas tax is not going to be a sustainable source of funding anymore with electronic vehicles and you know more efficient fuel fuel-efficient vehicles, things like that. So a user fee is really something that we need to start investigating, but people are afraid of that because their privacy, things like that, they're, they're not sure the government tracking where they're going. And, you know, some people don't drive at all. Some people drive all the time. So they're, they're, they have to figure out, you know, the right way to do those vehicle mile fees. And this infrastructure bill does include funding to kind of research the best way to move forward with the user-based fees. I mean, if you use the roads, you should pay for them is basically the responsible thing to do. Well, and then on top of that, like all of us are working. I mean, I think every one of us right now is at home. So like the, the, as, as everyone starts to drive less, <laughs> the problem is not getting any better that the roads are still crumbling. We're all driving less and buying less gas. And like you said, like, uh, as more and more of the population starts moving to hybrid or fuel efficient, uh, vehicles and electric vehicles and stuff like that, that, that kind of problem is, is, is still, uh, going to remain. Um, you, you mentioned kind of like this focus on the, uh, usage fees and maybe trying to figure that out down the line as, as being kind of like, well, it's not there yet, but, but it, it's something that they need to kind of have a, an ability to roll out in the future. What else is, um, is in this bill kind of what, what, what is the main makeup? How much funding, uh, total is, is there? How much funding is each kind of element of the infrastructure getting stuff like that? Well, it's $550 billion in new spending over the five year period that the bill is going to cover. And that's 110 billion for roads, bridges, and major transportation projects. And 40 billion of that money is just for bridges to be repaired and rehabilitated. And that is the single largest amount of money invested in our bridges since when the interstate highway system was constructed. But that that that's also incredible. only represents the, that's the sole maintenance funding mechanism in the whole bill. The rest of it can be put towards whatever states want to put it to. Um, there's 55 billion for water projects with a focus on upgrading that infrastructure. And that's also the largest investment in clean drinking water in our nation's history. And it will provide a 303.5 billion over the five year period for the federal highway program. That's a 35% increase over previous bills. So this is gonna help make a significant impact on that backlog for our roadways. Now, Jessica, I have a quick question for you. I understand after after reviewing this topic that yeah that sounds like a lot of money but there's no really no new work in this this is basically just a band-aid this is just a re what needs to be repaired this is not actually enough funding to actually pursue new projects to actually advance the well, infrastructure well is like I correct? said that states have basically unlimited um discretion over where these fundings can go we there is no fix it first provision in this bill and i think we're going to talk a little bit about what's missing in this bill coming up but states can do whatever they want with this money and i think that the problem with this bill is that lawmakers really want to put their stamp on something new and sexy like a new roadway so there's fear in washington that the money is going to go towards something new instead of fixing that backlog of maintenance repair projects that need to be done that have been kicked down the road for so many years because there's no money to do it 
Yeah, and I think it's a good segue into your article on the three things uh, that that the bill the bill misses. Um, if you kind of want to go into further detail on kind of like maybe that state discretionary kind of spending part, but but what else is kind of missing from this bill? I mean, no, I don't think anybody expected to be a perfect bill. It's kind of hard with <laughs> with the current divisions politically and kind of like the the way it's it's honestly a miracle that it got out uh, <laughs> of the Senate. But um, what what is missing from from uh, in your mind from this bill, and uh, what what are some things to kind of look look to in the future that maybe future bills could address? Yes, yeah, so we did talk about the fix it first provision, you know, it was brought up in the amendment process and there were 281 amendments to this 2700 plus bill. I'm not kidding. Like I saw a picture of this poor intern carrying this like bill and the stack was like three foot high, this poor kid. But the fix it first provision did not make it into the final draft of this legislation. So who knows where this money is going to really go. States have you know, they can apply for more money for their bridge repairs. There is that that dedicated bridge maintenance um, funding. But in terms of road maintenance, building more roads, we're not sure what that's going to look like. So I think that's a big miss. Um, also, this and Larry brought it up, you know, it kicks the highway trust fund solvency can down the road yet again. There have been year after year, there have been, you know, extensions to this highway trust fund program and they did not address that in this bill when they had the opportunity to do so. Uh, it does include a $118 billion bail out of the Highway Trust Fund from the general fund yet again. And that brings the grand total of transfers to the Highway Trust Fund to $271.8 billion since 2008. So they just keep bailing out this fund that really builds our roadways and funds our roadways without really putting any thought behind how they're going to make it solvent in the future. Like right now it's fueled by the gas tax. We already mentioned that that's not going to be the future of infrastructure funding. So they really need to find a way to address that. Um, and it also does not include workforce development. We know that that is a huge problem in our industry and across the country. And you know, 88% of contractors, they can't find workers right now that they need with this huge influx of work coming down the pipeline. This bill really missed the opportunity to find some funding mechanisms for apprenticeship programs, pre-apprenticeship programs, and ways that we can really bolster our workforce. So those are some things that I see that were a big miss in this. And who knows, the House might add those into there, but we're not seeing that, that they're going to do that. Yeah, and um, in, in terms of what we can expect from that from that house, you you had a story just that just went up with the just just uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, I think what what they say September twenty seventh, they were going to try to have a vote before then. What's what's kind of going on in the house, and what can we expect from there? Yeah, so nothing like waiting until the last minute. Uh, the highway trust fund at its current levels will expire on September thirtieth, so that's a little over a month from now. So Pelosi, who's the speaker of the house, she has said for ever since this bill came across that they would not consider the bipartisan infrastructure bill until the three point, uh, what was it, $3.5 trillion budget resolution was passed as well. So right. we wanna put those two funding packages together to vote on them at once. And, you know, they're kind of getting some pushback from some Democrats on that because they really wanna see this bipartisan 
infrastructure package move forward. So they came to an agreement. They came back from their recess early on Monday and came to an agreement that we will make sure that we vote on both of these packages by September 27th. And if they do that, it can be put up to the Senate and put on the president's desk before these programs expire on September 30th. So fingers crossed. We do think that the House has to pass it. I mean, it, it's been a long road. I, I really hope that we can come together on, on something. It's hard to imagine after all of this, it ending with a no from the House of Representatives. Um, exactly. it, it, it really is. And, and to to the kind of the point, I mean, I, I know that we've we've all kind of become numb to to just deadlock on a lot of these issues uh, over the last like 15 years or so. But to, to the credit of everyone kind of involved, both within the Senate and the House, I mean, I, I've been kind of I, I, like I said, I thought it was a minor miracle that it got through the Senate anyway. And so to the credit of the people there that. It does seem like there is a degree of kind of bipartisanship and actually working on these issues together that hasn't been there for a while, the last few administrations, right? Correct. Yeah, I think that there's definitely an appetite for it in Washington and in the country. I think that, you know, they really want to give everyone in Washington and the country this big win. And, you know, our, our infrastructure needs it. It needs the money and it, it really, we need to get going on it. But the politics here, uh, there's there's risk on uh, on both sides of the, the Democrat caucus because the the uh, progressives uh, in in the House wanted to see uh, the, the the big package, the three and a half trillion dollar uh, um, spending package, uh, address a lot of additional things, and they wanted that to be a priority. And while Nancy Pelosi's holding on to the to the vote on uh, the um, the infrastructure bill to sort of hash out some of those details. There's a lot of questions that could happen in that huge piece of legislation that the Republicans Correct. seem really strongly against. Mm -hmm. um, also, the the um, moderate uh, caucus in the in, in the Republic or among the Democrats in the in the House, uh, they want to they want to pass the infrastructure bill. Uh, and, you know, they're suspicious of the political capital that they would have to spend in order to make this three and a half trillion dollar, uh, push this three and a half trillion dollar project through the, through, through the house. So it's going to be a real interesting month. And with very murky waters. <laughs> right. And with three days before the HTF goes unsolvent, like, like Jess was saying, I mean, it's just like, there's a lot, let's, let's hope that, let's hope that they're doing all the, the, the homework now instead of you know <laughs> because it's going to yes. be an interesting week there for sure for sure not a lot of time to spare no. they can always they can always patch it with a with another transfer from the general fund true. i'm going to go on i'm going to go out on a limb now my, my guess is we're going to be talking about this in october uh, oh you think so? yeah well yeah don't yeah, do that larry that's bad juju no 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 larry stop it larry ship's going to push this into in october right Ooh. jason what were you going to say bud just out of curiosity i uh got a little bored today and went on indeed.com and typed in construction labor as a job in the u.s yeah. just curious okay not that i'm going to be signing up anytime I was soon say, but... like, wait a second <laughs> 52,198 job postings on Indeed.com for that phrase. Shocker. 274,000 if you just type in construction. Jeez. 
that's a crazy number. I mean, but it, it, yeah, and and kind of like to what Jess was saying earlier, it's not at all surprising. And again, it, it it's definitely like it's it's not a surprise to to hear that the trust fund and workforce development were again not even considered as part of this. Um, because again, we're just so used to it being kind of moved down the road. But yeah, I mean, at at a certain point here, uh, we're gonna need legislation that is focused on this. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know, Larry, if, if, if you know, you're a little bit more aware of the individual politics uh, and politicians and everything that are most helpful to the industry. But it's like, do you see that as something that legislatively can be addressed for? Or is that something that we're just gonna, uh, like, are they ever going to become aware of that? Well, you know, there's there's money that's uh, that has been appropriated to, to build these programs. It's not enough. It's 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 a pretty small amount. It's been a little while since I've read about uh, about those efforts. Um, you know, it's it's a challenging political football um, uh, because the the there's been a lot of of legislative energy expended in the last 20 years to diminish the capacity of the of the the uh, economy to produce. Uh, you know, people who are capable of doing construction jobs. A lot of right-to-work uh, legislation that that has has undermined union membership and unions. You know, say what you will about unions. They what they do is find people and train them to do hard jobs. Uh, right. right. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's been an, a, a subject that I I've wanted to spend some time looking at to, to see just how big the 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 uh, uh, decrease how much of a decrease in in skilled workforce um, has correlated with the the reduction in union membership uh, since the sort of most recent um, uh, push of right to work legislation in the marketplace but um, you know there you can you can come up with legislation for anything, I suppose. Um, you know, Biden. Go ahead, Jess. No, I was just going to say that Biden is aware of the problem. When he crafted his American Jobs Plan, he did have funding built into that plan that gave money for pre-apprenticeship programs, especially for women and people of color. So he is aware of the problem. It's just that that type of funding did not make it into this bill. So right. by the time it had gone through the the legislative filtration system. <laughs> <laughs> that I was like one of the, <laughs> that was one of the things that got and, but I also think like too um you know and to Larry's point like Biden is very pro union um he's he's made that very very clear uh on the campaign trail or even with the the kind of fight uh that was that happened here in my neck of the woods in Alabama over the the union efforts uh at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer but like he he he's definitely done a lot to kind of make that to make that uh part of his kind of stump but like I think the other kind of understanding of this issue, especially from outside the industry, maybe maybe even with within the industry, is that well, that's an industry problem. That's a that's an employer problem. You, they need to do more outreach. They need to do more partnership with the community colleges. And and the fact of the matter is, the guy there are guys out there that are doing that. Like there's there's tons of guys that are out there. Uh, you know they're they're exhausting all their their efforts in terms of like job fairs and partnerships with community colleges and trade schools and stuff like that. And it's still it's still a rough slog. But right? those, I mean, the people the, the people that are out there 
putting energy into this are, are unfortunately a very small minority. Uh, you know, that, yeah. that's the problem. There are some big companies and there are some sizable regional companies that, you know, have, have put a great amount of effort into workforce development and, and to plus or minus, depending on who you talk to and what kind of results they have, I don't know that necessarily any of them has seen the kind of results other than with them, with their own employment. And actually that's obviously that's their only real concern is their own employment, but not the kind of results that's, right. that are gonna change the, the challenge that demographics have presented the industry and have people have known about for 30 years. I mean, you know, what's like well, the first big issue I dealt with in this industry was the work was workforce uh, challenges and the the private industry is not solving that problem. Where it's the, the the numbers have have not improved, uh, and and so things like like the Biden administration's um, uh, um, segments of the of the initial Jobs Act that would promote that that kind of um, uh, apprenticeship building, those are those are. But you have to look at, at the question of where you want to spend your money. And, you know, if if your priority is to protect $440 billion a year worth of tax evaders and not develop uh, workers for to, to actually right. put in place this giant infrastructure plan, you got to question whether or not the people that are making the decisions are who, whose team they're on. Right. Well, guys, that's fantastic discussion around that i think uh we've, we've got a couple of other things to, to kind of talk about today so we're going to go ahead and move on but um yeah absolutely it's going to be uh you know really really interesting here in the next couple of weeks to see what happens jess i i, I for your sake i hope that it's just simple i hope that it's just like everyone loves it yes, and and yeah. uh it, it passed so um kind of moving on to the to the next story here it's a really really big story here in the industry uh as well especially with regard to um, uh, not only equipment, but to, to earth moving contractors as well. Um, after, after roughly like 30 years, uh, building, um, excavators together as part of a joint venture, Deer and Hitachi last week announced that they were dissolving. Um, they had come to a mutual agreement to dissolve that longstanding joint venture around, um, excavator manufacturing. Um, uh, Kurt, uh, you, you, you're covering the story uh, really closely. Uh, you, you know the history of everything, um, and and probably most everybody out there that would be interested in this kind of you know knows that that partnership and 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 how big of a role that has played in shaping the current excavator market today. But uh, tell us a little bit about the history of this partnership. How 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 far back did these two companies actually go? Actually, it's a lot long, longer than you, you could actually expect. When I looked into this, they've had supply agreements that go clear back into the late '60s. Wow. So, so I mean, these companies have been tied together. And I think you have to look at the history. I mean, all the major manufacturers supply excavators. I mean, that's a key component of earth moving. But if you really look at where we source these, they started in Asia. And most of them are made over in Europe and Asia. We really, even though we have a lot of American branded excavators, they're, they're really not sourced here. Um, so John Deere has a kind of a unique opportunity where they're going to be in the future we will be having U.S. designed excavators at some point. But I don't think the customers re really understand, even though Hitachi has been with that relationship with John Deere for that long, it's kind of like they're on the egg side where they have private label agreements on a lot of the components where 
people will see the private label product and say, oh, I'll never own that product because I own a John Deere. Yeah, exactly. Even though, even though the only difference is this one has green paint and this one has yellow paint. Well, and that was like the whole, that was the deal, right? Like Hitachi had great excavator design and technology and Deere had yes. this really strong brand. And so that was literally the end, as, you know, as far as we know, it was established that way and it hasn't really changed, correct? That's, that's exactly that what's still going on today. That's exactly correct. Hitachi is one of the better excavators. And, and when it comes to the John Deere product line, that's one of the stars of their product line is that excavator lineup. And it, one thing that's important to remember, if you're a contractor, you're not going to see things change overnight. I mean, it takes years to develop a next generation. And there is a supply agreement in place where even though there will not be any more Hitachi branded excavators rolling off the product line, it's going to be the same excavator you buy tomorrow or two years from now, probably that you're buying today, it's it's going to be in the future, the next generation is where we're really going to see the split, where John Deere is going to go one direction and develop their own excavators. And Hitachi is really key, is they've been working for years trying to set up a dealer network, and that's the key for Hitachi. They need to get the, the they finally got the dealer network, I believe, where they think they can go independent and make their own brand in the North American marketplace. And that is certainly a, a really interesting part of this whole puzzle, right? Because, I mean, that was another big element of the deal was that Hitachi back in the 80s, uh, I mean, the it I think the partnership actually goes back to supply agreements all the way back to the 60s, but like 80, yep. 88 was when they finalized the joint venture agreement and actually started making machines together. And, you know, Deere got an excavator, essentially, it was produced here, um, started, you know, it's been produced in Kernersville, uh, North Carolina since the inception of this deal. Um, and Hitachi essentially got a, uh, a dealer network and uh, the ability to, you know, some of these machines were, were yellow and some of them were orange. And so those orange machines got the same dealer network and advantages that deer. So it made a lot of sense for, for, for both parties. And so, um, I think Hitachi has 60 loader dealerships situated throughout throughout North America. Obviously, Deer and their dealer network is is much much bigger. Um, yes. And that and, and not only that, but they do have ag specific dealers. They do have um, uh, construction specific dealers. However, as I'm sure a lot of folks know, like here here in my neck of the woods, um, they're right across the street from each other. The Deer Ag dealer has some yellow pieces of equipment and green pieces, you know, along with its green. And the 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 construction dealer has some of the green pieces over there, so they they are able to double dip in that way. So the Deer dealer network cannot be underestimated in terms of like how 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 much that is. But Hitachi is essentially taking their excavator technology with them, even though Deer is getting to keep manufacturing those machines under a supply agreement. What what do you? I think that the most immediate fallout of this, Kurt. And I'm interested to hear your perspective on this, but the perception of deer excavators versus Hitachi deal, uh, excavators, like you mentioned earlier, like the private label thing, like, oh, I'll never own that brand of machine when you might actually own that brand of machine and just with a different coat of paint on it. What do you think is the perception of deer excavators versus these Hitachi excavators? Do, do, do you think that most of the, the customers out there know that they're really the same machine? And, and how do you see that kind of playing out as, as we move forward? I think a certain percentage do, but by and large, the mid-sized contractors, I think if they buy John Deere, they think they're buying John Deere. Right. And, and I, I think a lot of the loyalty does go with the dealership. I mean, in this industry, we've seen it over and over where the loyalty might not be to the specific brand, but it, the loyalty is to the dealer. You know, they're their close friend or somebody that they work with closely. 
And I think that's where Hitachi has really decided where they can go on their own because get it, the wheel loader business, purchasing Kawasaki gave them access to a, to a network, to a dealer network they've been looking for. And I think that was key to, to this whole process of Hitachi going out on its own was being able to acquire a well-established dealer network. Yeah, I don't think you can underestimate the 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 heft of that, you know, having being able to yes. buy your excavators from the same dealer that you buy all your loaders and your dozers yes. and, and everything else from. You know, that that's a that, that's a thing that builds loyalty for, you know, for all companies that build that buy um, multiple types of equipment. I mean, and to that point, go ahead, Kurt. No, I was going to say, if Hitachi was strictly an excavator company, they would have a hard hard go of it, I think. But now that they have an expanded product line, that's allowing them to set up a dealer network that offers enough of a product line that they can go after new business. But I, I agree 100% with what Larry said. If you have just one product, it's really difficult. You really need a suite of products that can serve the earth-moving contract. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I think most contractors out there are buying a lot of them anyway. I don't want to overgeneralize, but I, I know a lot of the guys that I've talked to on a regular basis and they, they buy based on relationships, not on, you know, brand or anything else. Like they've had, and, and that, that relationship might be based on one sales guy or one good experience with one type of machine. And yeah. And if, and if you can get, and you find a good service situation and, you know, a good sales salesperson and everything, it, it, it really does do a lot of kind of work in, into future sales. And, and also to that, like, do you guys think that the Hitachi brand, to that point, Kurt, you were saying that it, it, it definitely helps that they have a suite of machines or a fleet of machines now, along with the loaders and the excavators and the mining equipment and stuff. But do you think the Hitachi brand has improved in perception to enough of a degree because of this dear partnership and the added kind of reach that they've gotten through that over the last 30 years? Ha has the brand improved in enough in perception that going out on their own is, you know, like, are they going to have a quick start to that? Is it going to be kind of a slog at the very beginning? Because it seems like they're they're kind of like reaching, they, they see the success, you know, that Deer has, that Komatsu has kind of, you know, in those swap them out, number two, number three to Caterpillar and, I mean, any any number of, of segments and categories there. But that definitely seems like, like Hitachi wants some of that, some of that business that Deer and kind of Komatsu are, fi are fighting over. Do you, but do you think that they've improved enough in kind of the eyes of the market to, to kind of have a quick start? Boy, if I could answer that, I'd probably be a millionaire. <laughs> I'd be sitting in a different position. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, Hitachi, uh, among the mi the mining and the, the large larger customers, I think they've always had that reputation. Uh, against the mid-sized contractors, maybe not so much just because of brand recognition, because on the mid-sized and smaller products, they just didn't have as much visibility, I think, as they have they do on the larger side. So that is the question out that, that is out to be seen. And I, I really don't have a good feel for that because that's a, that's a tough one to answer. I mean, that that's going to kind of depend on their success or failure, whether they get that acceptance sure. from mid-sized well, and small And, guys. you know, I've talked to a, a number of contractors over the years uh, who, you know, have said, you know, we're, we're buying, we, we really believe in that Hitachi excavator, whether it had a deer, deer paint on it or, or, or Hitachi paint on it. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, very few of them are surprised that, you know, there, there, there's probably some contractors that aren't that involved in, with excavators that, that don't know that, that deer's uh, uh, excavators are um, a, a, a Hitachi design. And, right. And, um, 
you know, the, the ones, it's, it's interesting that just the, the, the nonverbal part of the communication between me and somebody who's, who says something about those, about those excavators really shows that, you know, these guys are saying, look, I know they're a Japanese uh, excavator, but they really work. And, right. you know, and so in that regard, mm -hmm. I think that, that Hitachi really made significant market inroads, um, uh, you know, and, and it'll, it'll remain to be seen what deer brings to the marketplace, whether or not it can, you know, can, can compete with, with Hitachi. Surely they've got 30 years of learning, you know, how that, that excavator technology works. I would expect they, they would continue to be a very competitive machine. But, uh, you know, there'll be, there will be companies out there who will switch to buying Hitachi excavators, you know, maybe not a ton of them, but there will be some. Oh, I absolutely yeah. think so. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. The, the ones who maybe they did have a deer excavator and they did a little, I'm just a little bit of digging. I mean, and I'm sure it's not a secret that the dealers keep you right because they were they were a joint venture they were they were proud of the the work they were doing yeah, together right yeah. and it's it's also important to note out I, I i thought it was interesting to read the press release uh hitachi's press release on that where this where they they specifically called out uh um you know mining equipment uh in this in this this press release and that's really where hitachi has a lot of strength globally um including in north america uh, and, you know, with 60 dealers, they can really actually address the, the uh, depending on where they all are. But that number of dealers can really address the mining market fairly effectively um, and, you know, and, and bring the really high dollar, really high um, uh, markup uh, machines like the, the mining shovels and that sort of thing in, in more numbers into North America. Well, and then, too, I mean, the you know, I agree with Larry, like that, that Hitachi press release, th release I, th I thought said quite a bit about kind of what's, what's going on with this deal. I mean, I, I, Al Quinn, the, the CEO or the, uh, he's CEO right now of, of the, 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 the JV, but will be the CEO soon at, at HCMA once the excavators get integrated into that, to that loader business, that North American loader business. Um, but he basically said that this move allows them to kind of determine their own destiny in the Americas. And I, and I don't you, you don't have to really read too far into that to say that Hitachi is kind of asserting its independence here, right? Well, in, in a, in another interesting aspect is, you know, the, the, this came at quite an expense to Deer too, because Deer did invest and they did buy all the Kearney facilities. They bought out the joint venture manufacturing, so the all, all the Hitachi product is going to be produced. The new Hitachi products going to be produced in Japan and shipped over. While the Deere stuff is going to be continued to be made in the joint venture factories that are now going to be 100% owned by John Deere. Right. And so just like the initial deal had pros and cons for both, I think the dissolution definitely has pros and cons for both. I mean, Deere is now having to rely on this like supply side agreement for its excavator lineup after February of next year. And that's their entire excavator lineup. And then, like, as you said earlier, having to go in this new direction of like, well, better figure out what these machines are going to look like in the next five to 10 years. And they, they have time. Um, but well, and I, I, I have a hard time believing this was actually a big surprise, too, because they've worked right. together for so long. I'm, I'm sure that they knew this has been coming for a few years, and I'm sure that they're, they have plans in place for their next generation excavators. Yeah, I think Hitachi said that they at least have been working on this since 2017. Yes. So... Um, yeah, like uh, if if deer if deer did have some some run up, then yeah, absolutely right. This is a lot less big of a deal for them. But then on on Hitachi side, they do lose their manufacturing footprint here in North America for excavators. 
they the the loaders are are already currently made overseas uh and in japan the excavators are now moving to japan as well so they are <laughs> that is going to be quite a hit um i know that they're they want their footprint their dealer footprint to grow too but that you know import export uh kind of kind of way of 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 bringing new machines in especially with lead times already being what they are is definitely going to be interesting for them moving forward. But, but I think Itachi has a leg up over a lot of the other um, Asian companies that have tried to break into this market because the big hurdle has always been the dealer network. Trying to set up a, a trying to set up and establish a dealer network that has always been the biggest hurdle to getting into the North American market. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, and if you look at Caterpillar's success, one of their the big reasons for their success is is just how expansive that dealer network is. Absolutely. Exactly. For sure. All right. Well, that's definitely a very interesting story to kind of keep an eye on kind of moving forward. Um, but, but Kurt, you've also been working um, in the last couple of weeks. You, you published a, uh, a really great piece on how uh, the, the semiconductor shortage that everyone is kind of aware of at this point and is definitely having an impact on just about every industry that has silicon in it, including the automotive industry. Um, and, and the construction equipment industry to some degree, but also how it's impacting the vocational, the work truck, medium duty kind of segment of things. Uh, but you also kind of looked at some of the class eight stuff too. So I think everyone is familiar with this story. It is such a far reaching problem, but kind of give us a quick overview um, based on your, your coverage of this, of the genesis, uh, the genesis of the chip shortage in, in general, kind of like, ha, you know, how did we get here? Why is there why is this shortage kind of going on for for those who haven't looked uh, kind of any deeper than kind of like the the shallow headlines? Uh, COVID COVID of course was the biggest driving factor, but there were a, a couple other contributing factors that I don't think people really realize that really kind of upset the apple cart. One is manufacturing has got a lot more efficient. We've moved to just in time. Well, just in time means your supply shows up right at the factory exactly when you need it. So that there, once that supply shuts off, there is you pretty much has a triple effect shutting down the whole industry. And the the other contributing factor was just bad timing. Um, auto chips are different, and I didn't really get into this in the article, but auto, automotive and vehicle chips are different than chips that go into your refrigerator or that go into your other appliances. They have to be ruggedized for vibration, and there's only a few companies that make chips that are suitable for vehicles. And one of okay. them is located in Japan, and it produces, believe it or not, 30% of the chips that go on our automobiles come out of one factory in Japan. Right wow. in the middle of the COVID crisis this May, they had a fire. <laughs> Pretty much shut their factory down. They just don't want yeah, that to they, they just came back online in July. So you consider just in time where the products get there, where the... You, the, the demand, when things start opening back up, demand came back right away. The just-in-time flow, it takes a long time for that to work through and get back to the factories. So it's kind of the rubber band effect. You turn the switch on now and you have instant demand, but you can't chip, turn the chips on and have instant supply. So it is working up. They, they are working chips. The, the manufacturers, as far as I know right now, nobody's shut back down, cross our fingers with the Delta variant going around. But um, nobody has shut the factories down. They're working at full capacity, but it's going to take them until mid twenty twenty two to catch up. So, so the, re the so how we had to to me one of my first questions about all this is how did we have any kind of production? Was did were they was there such an abundance of chips already kind of out there that they were given kind of a cushion? Because like this seems like a lot more like when you, the the whole aspect of that that line coming back on in July 
makes this much more of like a more recent urgent problem than I think even most of us kind of realize. So like how how did they have enough of a cushion to even make make anything? There really wasn't uh, much of a cushion, but you remember I said 30% of the chips. Okay. There, there's still 70% supply out there that's turning back on. And we do supply some chips in the U.S. Um, I, I think in the future, we're going to see a lot more chips may, be made here. But believe it or not, out of all the vehicles made here, we make like 14% of the chips. Everything, everything else comes from Malaysia, China, Japan. 14 is a bigger number than I would have thought. 1990, 37% of all chips were made here. Yep. 2020. 12% from the article I read. Yep. Wow. Uh, and, and, and depending on what you are and what type of chips they are, they are different. And the manufacturers also are pro pro proactive. Prior to the pandemic, you saw every everything imaginable. You had wireless chargers in your cars. They had heated back seats that gave you massages. They did all this stuff. <laughs> Look at the current lineup. GM, for example, they took wireless chargers out of their cars for the time being. Um, they're they're, de they're decontenting the high-end cars. Is anyone using the wireless chargers in their car? Right, show hmm. show of hands. Who's using their wireless charger? I, I it's just like I have the USB <laughs> cable. I have to use it for for CarPlay or Android Auto anyway. It's like so not a big loss for me. I don't know. No, no. My OE Mercury doesn't have that option. <laughs> That's not a retrofit option either. I mean, I I guess technically it could be. It could. No, I I'm still driving a 2013, so I don't have any of these features. So, but. But they started decontaminating the cars because it's really not as much as a microchip shortage now as it is a semiconductor shortage. Right. And there's, you know, millions of microchips, depending on how complicated the chip is. And uh, by decontenting, and basically uh, all a semiconductor is a switch. It tells some, something to do something. So the less things you have to tell it to do, the less semiconductors you can use in the chip. Basically, that's a layman's way of looking at it. So by decontenting the chips, you can you can produce more vehicles. And the thing that really hurts us, because we're in the work truck industry, and that's right. what really hurts us because we're not the high profit margin business. The high profit margin business is the high-end consumer, the person that's willing to spend for high-end cars. If you want an economy car or you want a work truck car, you're probably not in good shape right now because they're all going to high-end SUVs because that's where they're going to put their chips where their highest profit margin products are and trying to maximize that right now. And so for work trucks, I talked to Badger Ford over in Wisconsin, who's one of the largest work truck dealers in that region of the country. And their salesman basically told me, he says, I can promise you, I can, pro or I can put your name in and about 12 months from now, you'll probably get your work truck, but I'm not going to promise it to you in 12 months because I don't want you to be upset with me if it doesn't show up. Right. So, and as a result, the used truck market has went crazy, especially for vocational trucks. Like class eight trucks, for the first time, we're seeing used vocational truck averages breaking triple digits in value. That, that wow. That's crazy. I mean. What is the contractor kind of reaction to stuff like that? Are, are they just, are they just gonna, are there, I know there's some guys out there that are just kind of biting the bullet because they don't really have any other choice and they need a truck. And, and there's so much diversification and, into um you know more more applications that need trucks even from some of the smaller smaller guys out there or or, or heavy haul or or whatever else they might need so like well, what long haul truck is 
is different than us, which creates a real problem. It's basically, I don't know if you're extending life and you're trying to force trucks that aren't necessarily the best fit into your operation to keep your operation going. Right. For vocational trucks, you need unique specs. So unless you're ordering your truck with those specs, it becomes very difficult because a lot of these trucks just don't exist on the lots. So, like, in your mind, like, how, how should contractors be approaching this, this kind of problem with, with, with all of these challenges in mind from spec outs to availability? Like, what, what, is, what, have, you, what have you kind of heard from the dealers in terms of how they should approach the, the, the problem? Well, the, the dealers, of course, and it, there's probably a little self-interest in here, but the dealers, of course, are saying, get your dealer, get your, or if you're planning on buying a truck next year, get your order in now. Right. I mean, that, that's, and there's probably a little self-interest in that, but there's a lot of truth to it, too, is, like, if you foresee yourself needing a truck, in the next year, maybe you should be ordering it now, instead right. instead of instead of waiting because your availability. I mean, everything I've been reading is it's looking like mid twenty twenty two before things start to normalize. Then we're still going to be short on inventory. Is there any kind of variability by OEM or by truck brand? Are they all? Is it all pretty much the the same brand to brand or? Um, I think it's more class eight versus truck versus. Yeah, I, I tell them the automotive companies that produce the the more conventional truck pickup trucks like the three quarter ton and half ton pickup trucks they're pretty much a lot of them are in the same boat i mean they're all getting chips from the same suppliers it's not they don't make their own chips they all get them from the same suppliers so how does how does like like class a compare to medium duty is there or is there any variability there in their availability I, you know, I, I never dove into that as much. I, I do know that on the class eight side, talking to, to the people at Kenworth, they have trucks that they got like thousands of trucks waiting to get to customers that are built just waiting for a chip, kind of similar to, to Ford and what we've all seen from Ford and General Motors at Ford. I think we've all seen the images that they broadcast on the news where you got the stadium there is just full of brand new Ford vehicles minus the chip right. waiting to go to the and the, the latest we've heard is they're even talking about sending those without chips to dealers and having the dealers install the chips. Wow. So. Yeah. So uh, kind of the last question before we kind of move on to, to some of the other uh, headlines in the news this, over this last week. Um, how do we kind of see um, this impacting backlogs? Right, that are that are that are that are already soaring and 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 high, but and compounded by the lack of new equipment on the market as well. Like, how do we see that shaking out? You know, there's a large backlog, and it, that's difficult to measure because we've seen this happen before with supply shortages. Is the backlog 100% real, or is somebody thinking they're ordering a truck, hedging their bets? I might need a truck, so I'm going to put my name on the list now, whether I need the truck or not. So, is it a, a real backlog, or is some of that kind of a shadow backlog just in case you know you're putting your name in because there's limited availability definitely all right well um again an another kind of um uh you know it's it, it seems like with 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 everybody with the with the 12 month um kind of lead and everything at least we're through it seems like the actual root of the problem as they're kind of spinning back up and everything so so hopefully not much more past the uh the middle of next year right kurt well and I also think it's important to, we, we focused on microchips. One thing we haven't said, and I've heard this from so, several of the truck manufacturers I talked to, it's not just chips. I mean, chips are the, the main problem, but we've seen truck production stop because of things like they can't get seats or they can't get seat foam or different components. There's a lot of interesting supply chain issues happening. 100%. Yeah. So 
Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll, we're definitely going to keep an eye on that as, as that whole kind of story uh, plays out, but um, we're kind of, let's move on here to some, uh, some of the other uh, smaller news items for the week. Um, Up first, the, uh, the, the long saga of the Doosan Hyundai acquisition (laughs) seems to have finally uh, maybe come to, to a close here as uh, uh, Hyundai's, um, acquisition of Doosan Infracore, that is the Doosan branded construction equipment, not including Bobcat, um, has uh, uh, received approval and is complete. Um, and 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 again, kind of like the big thing there is that Hyundai construction equipment did not make that purchase. Um, it was the the overall Hyundai kind of conglomerate that 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 made uh, that purchase, and it was for a thirty percent controlling stake in Doosan Infracore. So there are still other owners of that interest. Um, but the the big change there, um, as of right now, Doosan uh, construction equipment, the, the orange machines are, are going to be owned by Hyundai, controlled by Hyundai, but they are not changing their colors or the branding or anything else like that. And the two companies are going to operate independently as sister companies moving forward there's there's a whole lot of questions still to till to go but you know what's what's everybody's thoughts on 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 that finally being complete i think the rumors first started of this going down back in september of of last year so literally almost 12 months of time in between like is this happening i guess it is oh yep it's happening and then now it's it's actually done so yeah the um uh you know i think the initial offers and stuff were made in september so it goes back further well further than that uh you know i think that's that's when it you know when it first started and and uh you know the the interesting part about that and you know kurt you were closer to the to the writing on this but um it puts them in a pretty significant position globally uh, if you if you can combine the two, if you think about them, uh, Doosan Infracore and, and Hyundai as as a single unit, uh, they 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 run up the the list of the top ten construction equipment manufacturers globally pretty far, don't they? Yeah, and I, I think something that's important to add there too is um, a lot of this revolved around it was 2019 when they took us to Korea and showed us their Concept X which is basically they're really investing heavily in the automation of their fleet and trying to get to a, a autonomy and construction. That's going to be a costly venture. And this actually gives them the capital infusion they're going to need to try to make that a reality because I think it would have been difficult under Doosan to be able to spend the kind of capital required in order to make this reality. And, I, and another th- interesting side note is I, I was just in a Georgia uh, about a day and a half ago visiting and we actually stopped at Hyundai and we actually asked him specifically about this. And, and to, to Wayne's point that he mentioned earlier, they emphasized these are two separate brands. They're going to be kept separate. The marketing is going to be separate, but it does um, give both companies visibility into R&D. It gives them both, they're both going to be able to see what each other is doing and maximize the investment in the R&D side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of moving on to this, uh, to, to a few of these other kind of quick hits here before we, uh, sign off for this episode. But, um, uh, Larry, I, I, uh, I, this is something that you pay, uh, particular attention to on, on your side of things, but there was a, uh, 
a pretty significant dip here, and, and it seemed like it was pretty unexpected, too, on the housing start side. You got some information for us on that? Yeah, in July, there were, it was forecast that there was going to be a decline in housing starts, but it, it came back in, depending on which forecast you look at, somewhere in the neighborhood of twice that, at 7%. Um, and it's interesting that it happened at the same time that consumer sentiment uh, really has kind of faded to the lowest point that it's been since 2011. Right. Uh, um, you know, total single family starts were down four and a half percent and multifamily was down 13.6 percent. And if you look at the detail in the University of Michigan's consumer sentiment index, uh, you know, attitudes uh, toward home buying uh, are at a 40 year low. Now, uh, new home purchases picked up in, in July, but only one percent. So it's an interesting development. Yeah, I mean, and, and and hearing the sentiment side is not particularly for anyone who is looking for a house right now. Totally understands that massive pain. Yeah. <laughs> Jess, are you looking for a house right now? No, I mean, we just bought our house a year ago, and it was crazy. I mean, the bidding war a year ago, and now wow. you can't even you can't even look for a house without being pre qualified, and you have to have like bidding wars. It's it's rough out there. Yeah. No, we briefly considered selling ours and trying to like get on this like price surge that's going up everywhere. It's like all of our home values are up, guys. That's the good news. And you can't, there's, there, the other houses don't exist. So it actually means absolutely nothing right now. All right. So last night up on the docket today, uh, there was another story. Uh, got, got this information from the folks over at Ritchie Brothers and their, their, their auctioning data, but skid steer prices. Um, are up 30% in the United States, according to the resale uh, data generated over at Ritchie Brothers um, and their August market trends report. Um, growing in prices across all equipment indexes with uh, truck tractor prices up 31%. But, um, in, and, you know, and uh, as we were talking about earlier, vocational trucks are up 27% and 26% respectively for the uh, three months ending in July 31st. Uh, so all earth, uh, earth moving and vocational trucks up 27 and 26%. Uh, for the three months ending in July. So um, definitely some some data backing up uh, to what we were talking about with Kurt earlier in terms of used uh, used prices. But uh, of, of interest here, the skid steer uh, prices, I would imagine that has a lot to do with uh, with new availability. Um, what does everyone else think? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about used prices for earth moving equipment going up as much as truck prices, used truck prices. So, I mean, it's they're they're clearly a supply issue. There's a shortage of rental. If you want to try to rent equipment, you can't rent equipment now because there's a shortage of equipment. If you can't rent, you're going to probably have to try to look to try to purchase what you can. Right. Well, hate to end the show on a down note. Uh, no houses, no equipment, and no trucks in general. <laughs> but uh, that's that's all the time that we had today. And I uh, hope you guys uh, I- enjoyed listening. Uh, and uh, all right, everybody, say goodbye. Safe out there. Well, all right, guys, like we said, that's going to do it for this inaugural episode of The Forecast today. Be sure to check out all of our coverage at fourconstructionpros.com, where you can read about all the stories that we talked about today and more. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter, Headline News. If you like the show, also do us a favor and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. Until next time, we'll see you later.